0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, So this lesson is going to not necessarily require a handout, but it's certainly aided by one. Uh, Jim, do you know if everyone was able to get one? So, yeah, so uh, can anyone raise your hand if you didn't get a Bible overview handout? Walter, did you get one? Okay, so I think everyone has one. So I'm going to be doing a lesson on an overview of the Bible uh, this morning, and this kind of stems from a conversation that Jason, John, and I had uh, a few weeks ago just as we discussed kind of the the value of just knowing what happens in the Bible and how encouraging it can be to just put it all together and kind of just even see the facts as they play out. This is something that you may think as well would maybe be more suitable for a Bible study context, but I think there are exhortations and points of application to be made actually when we're able to see the overall working of God's plan uh, all at one time here. Um, so we'll be trying to do that as we as we work through just an overview of the Bible. Um, and this is a lesson that I did uh, about a year and a half ago, a little bit longer than that. It was October 2021. Uh, so some of you may be a bit familiar with uh, kind of how I outlined the Bible from that lesson as well. But just some introductory points here just about the Bible. So the Bible is not just one book. This is something that makes the Bible an extremely unique written document. It's not just one book and it's not just a set of religious teachings. It is 66 distinct books written over a period of about 1,500 years. So the composition of the Bible and its makeup is an enormous historical undertaking over a period of of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors across three continents and in three languages. And that would be Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek languages. So again, just what the Bible is as a written document is an enormous and extraordinarily diverse undertaking and accomplishment. Another thing that makes the Bible unique is it follows a historical narrative. And this is easy to take for granted how important this is, that it's not just that God expects us just, here's a book, read it and believe it, although certainly that is a good faith to have, is believing just based on what's said in the word. But God gives us historical evidence for his work. His actions through history took place in real places, with real people, real groups of people. And there is a distinct historical narrative that happens leading up to Jesus and extending out of Jesus. This narrative focuses on something very specific that God is working to redeem and reconcile mankind through Jesus. So there's a lot of things that God could focus on, but God doesn't focus on the great industry of man. When there's kings of Israel, and it'll reference that there's other battles they fought, there's other things that they accomplished. What God is most concerned about in the Bible is a narrative that focuses on redemption and reconciliation, especially through Christ. And God does this by establishing his kingdom and his covenant through Jesus. We'll kind of come back to this at the end of the lesson and be working through this. But these are two terms that are particularly important to understand as thematic terms for biblical emphasis. God is establishing a kingdom. There's really two kingdoms that exist within the Bible that both kind of parallel each other and come out of one another. God establishes one kingdom through Israel physically That was in the region of Palestine, where Palestine is currently. And then there's the kingdom of heaven that he establishes in Jesus. God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, but God made a new covenant through Jesus when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. We'll again be coming back to those concepts through the lesson. But kingdom and covenant, those are the two big themes that we see in the Bible. Something really amazing about the Bible as well, if you turn to Luke chapter 24, uh, this... Is probably in my teaching uh, the most referenced verse I think I point out in Bible studies and in sermons uh, and that's because these verses particularly in Luke 24 uh, have really made an impact on me on how to understand the Bible and even thinking about evidences for the reality of what God has done just how how much of accomplishment it is what God did before Jesus leading up to him in Luke 24:27, this is Jesus after his resurrection with a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says about this conversation then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the idea is the entire narrative throughout the Old Testament is filled with themes that relate to Jesus, figures, people that relate to Jesus events that relate to Jesus. All of these things both reflect him, they lead to him very directly, but all of it also depends on him to accomplish this ongoing work that God is doing to establish his kingdom in Jesus by fulfilling a covenant that would be fulfilled in Jesus as well. So with those introductory thoughts, I want to move on to the timeline that you have, and this is painting with some fairly broad strokes And before we get into some verses to work through the timeline, I'll first kind of overview what you're looking at on your sheet. On the bottom you have the historical books of the Bible. So starting from Genesis to the book of Acts, these are the historical books. So Genesis to the book of Esther really covers the entire historical narrative, the entire narrative of the Old Testament. After Esther, you get Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, which are five books that are considered books of wisdom. And then you have from Isaiah to Malachi, the final section of the Bible, which is the books of prophets. Now, those books of prophets, I have the date kind of shaded out with an emphasis on the books right now. But that takes place in a very tight period of time from about 760 to 440 B.C., so the prophets worked during the times of the kings of Israel, when the kingdom was destroyed by Babylon, and it, when when it was renewed and restored in the times of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But suffice it to say, Old Testament up to Esther, the entire biblical narrative takes place, and everything outside of that takes place within that narrative in terms of the books of wisdom, books of the prophets. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Acts are primarily the historical books of the New Testament, and I've stacked books that uh, take place in the same time frame. So you notice in the Old Testament, Judges and Ruth take place in the same time frame. The Samuel books and Chronicles, they're within the same time frame. First and Second Kings and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are obviously all accounts of the life of Jesus. And so those take place in the same time. And then you have the book of Acts after that, finally. So above that, these are 10 events. So these are not necessarily periods of time. So I think a lot of us are familiar with the 17 time periods. An older brother named Bob Waldron uh, came up with 17 Bible time periods, and that's something that a lot of brethren have learned and are familiar with. Uh, But this is something that I put together just from my own Bible reading as a way of condensing the biblical timeline in my mind is that ultimately there are 10 major events that everything in the Bible centers around, 10 events. You have creation. The next major event after creation is a complete flood. After the complete flood, God divides the nations of men into different languages, thus dividing the kingdoms. The next major event after God works with Abraham and makes a covenant with him and his descendants you get the Exodus covenants where God delivers Israel from Egypt, enters into a covenant with them at Sinai. And after uh, taking them out of Egypt, they then conquer the land that was promised to Abraham. And after a period of time, the kingdom is established under the rule of David. And now this is about 110 BC when David begins ruling. And then slowly as after the period of time of David, there is a slow decay, a slow burn to the kingdom being completely destroyed by Babylon. And then the kingdom is restored. And the next period is the King and Christ. Jesus comes and establishes finally the kingdom of heaven. With these events, something to take note of about these things. The story of the Bible is a story of restoration. Every time God acts to intervene, Sin decays and destroys. After God creates the world, Adam sins. It destroys the relationship that God had with Adam and with Eve, with mankind. And so God sends a flood after a period of time because it had so decayed that everything that was alive needed to be destroyed by the flood. And for God to intervene again with the dividing of the kingdoms, things were decaying and deteriorating. The exodus takes place again to restore, to intervene the Canaan conquest God intervenes once again powerfully by establishing them in the land and through the period of the time of the judges again there's decay there's death God's relationship with his nation is being destroyed God intervenes with David and the kingdom is established and so on and so forth so these are these are 10 events where amidst everything else happening God intervenes in ways particularly to restore and both to move his plan forward towards Jesus as well. With these 10 events, there are 10 people or 10 figures that are very major figures that reflect Jesus and his kingdom in some very important ways as well. Adam with creation, Noah with the flood, Abraham after the dividing of the kingdoms. God divides the kingdoms of men, but then promises to Abraham to make of him a great nation and to make his name great You have Moses, a very important figure in the Exodus. Joshua leads the people into the Canaan land to conquer it. David, again, is the figure who established God's kingdom or who God used to establish his kingdom. The nation of Babylon was a very important nation that destroyed Jerusalem entirely and exiled all of the people of Judah and Jerusalem uh, to a foreign place. Daniel in Babylon lived during the time where the kingdom was restored he was in exile in Babylon there are a lot of important promises in Daniel about what God would do to restore the problem not just of the physical exile but ultimately spiritually finishing his work to establish his eternal kingdom Jesus is obviously the most important figure in the Bible and in the world who finishes God's plan establishing his kingdom and covenant and the apostles after Jesus people who are ambassadors of Christ, representatives of him carrying his authority in their teaching. So I want to start now just kind of going through a narrative. We're going to again, paint with some pretty broad strokes and just look at some points of interest along the way to see how God fulfills this plan. And again, you have some dates on the board here about 1447 BC is when Moses would have lived about 110 to 970 BC, David, Then about 586, 536, when the kingdom was destroyed and restored. And then 33 AD is uh, about the time of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But let's go back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve uh, listened to Satan, took the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat, Uh, God is dealing out... Uh, consequences for these things. And in verse 15 particularly, God makes a promise that he follows through on for the rest of history leading up to Jesus. Genesis 3 verse 15. This is again spoken to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." I think it's fair to say that everything God does after this point is a follow through on this promise specifically. God would ensure that ultimately there would be victory in the seed of the woman over Satan, that there would come this ambiguously referenced figure here, this he, who would conquer Satan, crushing his head, although. This figure would be bruised on the heel in a sense. Ultimately, mankind would conquer and be exalted through this figure referenced here, overcoming the dominion of Satan and establishing victory. Something lost here would be regained. Look further at chapter 12. After God floods the world and begins making covenants as a solution, he makes a covenant with Noah that's more of a a worldwide covenant that God will no longer flood the world again. He makes a more personal and specific covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And just like Genesis 3.15, I think it's very fair to say and important to notice that everything God does from Genesis 12 and forward is in direct response to these specific promises made to Abraham. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. New Testament writers would reflect specifically on that last statement in verse three that this was ultimately a new covenant promise, something that could not have been fulfilled and was not fulfilled until the time when Jesus had ascended to heaven and sent the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 so that the church age could begin. But God makes these promises to Abraham that he will make of him a great nation. This nation will inherit a specific land in Canaan where Abram would then sojourn. He would make him a blessing and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the narrative that God follows through the rest of biblical history specifically. These promises, this covenant, would be the means by which God would fulfill his kingdom and his covenant that Jesus would later fulfill and perfect. We're going to go forward a good bit. And in your Bibles, this is just turning forward. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, God, later, about 400 years after Abraham, redeems Israel out of Egypt. He makes them a great nation. He gives them a law. And so they become a kingdom community with God at their head. And after 40 years in the wilderness, as we saw in the scripture reading, in the time of Joshua, they go back to the land that was promised to Abraham, and they conquer that land. They inherit it. Look at Joshua 21, 43 through 45. We'll notice a similar verse here to what's said here in Joshua in just a moment. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would be included in that category of their fathers. And they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Despite everything working against God, despite the unfaithfulness of Israel in the first generation, not one promise God made failed. The story of the Bible is a story of God's faithfulness faithfulness against all odds and fulfilling his commitments his covenant when he has every reason to withdraw or revoke his commitment to his promises we'll see again another reference to the fact that God fulfilled his promises so in the bible there's there's a a dual fulfillment of what was said to Abraham God would first fulfill these promises physically with Israel but then spiritually in the kingdom of heaven Turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter six, chapter five rather. So judges after Joshua, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter five now. Again, the period of the judges, a very turbulent time where everything is working against God and his people and their relationship. Uh, The judges is a period where the people had quickly turned to idolatry and God intervenes through building up David, a man after God's own heart, as we saw again in the scripture reading in Acts chapter 13. And this is a period where God firmly establishes his kingdom and gives them a stability they did not have in the time of the judges after Joshua initially conquered the land. 2 Samuel 5, 10 through 12. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. This is a critical period of time in the historical narrative that's taking place in the Bible. The kingdom is firmly established and exalted. This had not happened in this way before 2 Samuel chapter 5, not until the time of David when God through him was able to firmly establish and exalt his kingdom. In this period of time, in 2 Samuel 7, God expounds on promises he had made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel 7, There are critical promises that are again quoted in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, kingdom promises. Second Samuel seven, verses 12 through 13, promises made here to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And look down at verse 16 as well. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David's son Solomon built the temple. And this was, in a sense, it was a house for God. But Solomon's role as king did not last forever. Solomon lived and died, and even the period of the kings in general did not last forever. We'll see that in a moment through Babylon. But look at 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings is the next book after 2 Samuel. Something that David's son Solomon acknowledges when the temple is built for God, and Solomon is aware of all the work that God has been doing to fulfill his covenant to his people Israel. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 56. This is at the inauguration of the physical temple that Solomon had built. First Kings chapter eight, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. So in Joshua's time, he acknowledges God has given rest to his people. God has fulfilled all of his promises. And then after the, time of, uh, after the time of Joshua, things again become very turbulent, very unstable. And yet because of God's intervention, we see again Solomon acknowledging God has given rest to his people. He has fulfilled everything that he promised. However, in Joshua and in First Kings, God warns them, That if they, on their part, turn away from him, he will bring a nation against them and drive them out of the land that he had given them. That he would destroy the kingdom that they had established for themselves and that they would go in exile into a foreign land. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 25. So this is further in your Bibles. Uh, Jeremiah is the largest book in the Bible. And so if you turn past Isaiah, that's Jeremiah, but it should be fairly easy to find with how large a book it is. So Isaiah, then Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25, and this is in reference to Babylon and why God sent Babylon against Jerusalem in this biblical narrative, this history. Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 9. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people in Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, and mind you, these are some of the last kings of Judah now being mentioned, These twenty-three years the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now, everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them, And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting reproach." So despite everything God had done up to this point with bringing them into the land after giving them a covenant at the time of the Exodus, he had delivered them from Egypt from their oppression. He had established them as a nation. He had established them in their land. He had established a king. He had established prosperity and stability in the nation and dominance over their enemies. Despite all of these things that God had done to restore, to sustain, to fight for the people, to teach his people, sending prophets endlessly, here's where they end up the kingdom is destroyed by Babylon. And in verse 11, God promises that this would take place the exile for a period of 70 years before they would be humbled and brought back and be restored again to that land. Before this, in Jeremiah 31, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God makes a promise. And this is a period filled with promises. It is a period filled with promises. As the kingdom is destroyed, God looks persistently forward to the time where it not only would be restored but glorified in the work of the Messiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 is the longest Old Testament quote that is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. The longest quotation from the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Again, mind you the time frame they're living in here. They've broken the covenant. They're about to be driven out of the land and destroyed. It looks like it's all over. Although I was a husband to them, continuing verse 32, declares the Lord. But... This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. God's solution is he would establish a greater covenant built on greater promises. It wouldn't be a covenant that you got into because your parents cut your skin away, not a covenant of the flesh when you weren't even aware of who God is or could even learn of who he is. But instead in verse 34 at the end, it would be a covenant based in knowing God and in mutually valuing the need for forgiveness and the power of forgiveness. So each person would no longer need to be taught about the Lord and who he is because the people of this covenant would all know him from the least to the greatest on the basis of forgiveness. Everyone would know the Lord. And now you turn to Daniel Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. So Daniel's just a little bit further forward and still a prophet. But this is a prophet now living in exile in Babylon. Daniel received a place of prominence in Babylon. And he interacted very directly with Nebuchadnezzar, the king mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 25. And Daniel chapter 2 is an interaction with this Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon had a dream. And he sought for someone to interpret this dream. And nobody could do it except for Daniel. And Daniel's interpretation of this dream, as the king of Babylon saw this large statue made out of different materials representing the kingdoms that were soon to come. uh, Babylon first, then uh, Persia, Greece, and then finally Rome. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, not only did God promise at this time that there would be a new covenant that would be established that would resolve this long conflict that was ongoing through this history, he would do this by establishing a new kingdom, Daniel two forty four. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now in verse 44, just think about the language. Can this kingdom be the physical kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that was destroyed because of the people's unfaithfulness? No, in verse 44, this is in a sense a new kingdom, a kingdom that cannot and will not be destroyed, a kingdom that would conquer all other kingdoms and it would endure forever while crushing and putting an end to all other kingdoms. Look in chapter 7 as Daniel himself sees a personal vision of something seemingly very related to these things. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Think back on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then in Genesis chapter 12, in your seed, all the, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God's promise to David that there would be a descendant from him, some person who would inherit an eternal throne, seemingly implying that this person would never die and would inherit an eternal rule and dominion over not just Israel, but all the world. And here again, over time, it's becoming more and more clear as more expectations are given as to this person and this time. In verse 13 and 14 of Daniel 7 again, this person is not ruling on earth. Notice in verse 13, he's going up in the clouds of heaven and he's being presented before God, this Agent of days, and is being presented directly before him. And in verse 13, as this scene is happening, he's being given in this place dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples might serve him, and his dominion becomes everlasting. So we have someone who's going to conquer Satan, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and come from the woman. We have someone who's going to fulfill the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We have someone who's going to come from David, Second Samuel chapter 5 or 2 Samuel chapter 7, rather, verse 13 and 14. We have someone who's going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah in Jeremiah chapter 31. We have someone in Daniel chapter 2 who's going to be like a stone cut away from this mountain of Israel, and he's going to have a worldwide kingdom. And in verse 13, he's not going to be ruling from earth, but rather this heavenly place that all peoples might serve him forever. How do you reconcile all of these very seemingly contradictory or seemingly impossible to fulfill promises all at once in one person? That's where we reach our King in Christ. As we read in Acts chapter 13, if you'll turn back there, Paul in his sermon in Acts 13 references multiple times that it was Jesus and only Jesus who all the prophets had been speaking of unanimously, that Jesus is the Christ, the one person who has been the single-minded mission of everything that God had been doing. Acts chapter 13, look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Verse 29, They carried out all that was written of him. And notice in verse 32, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had ever done. Jesus is the new Adam, the beginning of a new creation. Jesus is the new Noah, saving us from the worldwide wrath of God in the ark of his kingdom. Jesus is the new Abraham, the single man by which all of God's promises rest on. Jesus is the new Moses, delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus is the new Joshua, who leads us on a conquering mission to inherit what God has promised. Jesus is the new David. who who rules by justice and righteousness and faith. Jesus conquers the Babylon just as Daniel lived in a time when Babylon was overcome. Babylon demonstrated the harsh reality of God's wrath against sin. Jesus' crucifixion at the hands of the world power of his day mutually represents the depravity and the hostility of sin and the wrath of God. But just as Jerusalem was restored and God's people were given uh, a restoration to return back where God had planted them originally, Jesus was risen from the dead to more fully prove that God is able to restore his people from any depraved or degraded condition that they might be in. Jesus came to fulfill every event, every figure, and to demonstrate that this is the kingdom that God had always been working to establish. I wanna finish the lesson with one passage and just make a couple points about what's said in Hebrews chapter six about the importance of the demonstration of God's faithfulness. We're gonna finish on Hebrews chapter six, and this is the last scripture we'll look at just by means of reflection on this overview. Hebrews chapter six, verses 11 through uh, 20. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute in the same way. God desiring notice this desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise. That is us the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, with reflecting on this overview God's faithfulness over this long period of time from the beginning of creation, there's really two things I want to consider. Number one, when is it important to know someone's past? When is it important? When is it helpful to know someone's past? Knowing someone's past can give needed context to their behavior, to their habits. It can help you value who a person is because of where they've come from. It can help you interact with that person, knowing how to interact with them. What are they interested in? Where have they come from? Again, it can help you understand their values and why do they value what they value. It can help you understand why they do what they do. And it can help you have greater respect for who they are. Again, if you're able to appreciate battles they've overcome in their past. The more we understand what God has done through history, the consistency of his faithfulness to his promises, the more anchored we are to not only have a greater respect and appreciation for God, but what he does now at the fulfillment of all of this in Jesus's rule as an eternal King. Why do we ask people what they do for a living in conversation? You know, why are we interested in what someone does from work? Sometimes it's just, you know, making conversation, conversation, social niceties. But when you know what someone is habitually invested in presently, again, it gives you another layer of ability to properly interact with them. If I'm able to understand what someone does for a career, how they spend their days, then I'm able to have a more coherent relationship with them, same as with God. What about when we know someone's ambitions? You know, what are their goals? What do they want in the future? What are they trying to do with their life beyond their past or what they're doing presently? Knowing their ambition helps us understand their direction and what the purpose is for why they do what they do. Knowing the past of what God has done helps us appreciate the ambitions God has and his ability to fulfill those ambitions. That leads us to the second point i want to get to here by conclusion in reflection verse 17 god made these ancient promises for over a thousand years the time of abraham was about 1800 bc so nearly two thousand years passed between the time of abraham and the time of jesus god has proven something that he desired to demonstrate verse 17 he desired to show the heirs of the promise The unchangeableness of his purpose. Therefore, he interposed with an oath and he swore by himself. I would describe this timeline as turbulent. It's the one word I would use. And there's something critical that is made known about God that through every period of tribulation and turbulence, when so often it looked like God's plan was collapsing fundamentally, when it looked like God had every reason to revoke his promises, or even beyond God's faithfulness, just the circumstances themselves, it looked like everything had failed. It couldn't continue from here. It just can't move forward. God proved his ambition was unchanging. And he's proven through evidence of work through time it is impossible for him to lie. Everything that could have God caused God to change his purpose was done in this history. And God remained true to his purpose. More practically, why is that so helpful? And I'm gonna make this, this is something I've been thinking about that's very personal. This congregation can be circumstantially turbulent. We've had a lot of good brethren move away recently. Courtney moved away recently. She got married to Gregory. Hannah and Ryan moved away for work and family reasons. And the Maxwell's moved away for work and family reasons. All of those are okay reasons. And the kingdom is bigger than just this local church. But when people move away who are very encouraging, that's, that's challenging. But even though it's challenging, has God changed? Has God moved away? Is God neglectful? of the work here, of the people here? What has God proven when we look at the big picture of something like this timeline? There were times in this history where righteous people struggled, thinking, God, are you neglecting us? Have you forgotten what you promised us? And being able to look back and see the big picture, God never forgot. And even times where things were discouraging, where things were harder than at other times, Those were necessary periods of time that God was using to especially fulfill his purpose and prove the unchanging nature of his commitment. Our commitment to God is based on God's commitment to us. Our zeal for God is based on his zeal for us. Our passion, our diligence, it's based on God's passion, God's diligence. God sees the work in Savannah. God sees every one of us. And just as Israel in the Old Testament, there may be turbulent ebbs and flows with the nature of the work here. But God has proven himself unchanging. Look back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. What is this hope to us? It is an anchor for the soul. We don't serve God because it's easy, because it's convenient. We serve him because of what he's done. And we serve him through whatever times we may be confronted with because of how he inspires service by his. That's the lesson for this morning. I hope that these points with an overview is not only informationally helpful, but emboldening to faith. Sometimes there's times where we need to not just lose the forest and the trees, but just appreciate the enormity of what God does or has done and what that implies practically about the quality and kind of faith that we can have no matter what circumstances we are confronted with here in Savannah. I love you all. I love the work here. God's work here is so important. God loves us and will be with us, and he'll continue to build his work as he's proven he is always striving to. If you're here this morning and you need the prayers of the saints to confess sin or put on Christ and salvation, we always reserve this period of time at the end to bring those things forward while we stand and sing the imitation song.